Welcome to the Investing Tutor Podcast, the show for professionals looking to master the most up-to-date strategies needed to build wealth and provide a stable financial future. Here's your host, Dr. Hans Boateng. So Michael Kastonik is joining us. So Michael specializes in working with young families with kids under 10. He considers himself the advisor for middle-class America. Without further ado, help me welcome Michael Kastanik. Michael, great to have you. Yes, awesome to be here, Hans. I, I enjoyed our conversation a couple weeks ago also, man. It was fantastic. Absolutely, Michael. And I'd like to start out by sharing something that you had said in our prior conversation. You said personal finance is simple but hard. Can you explain? So, yeah, personal finance is, is really simple. The basic SFX of it, like we said, were really two, maybe three things. It's spend less money than you make, save the difference, and then invest it somehow. And the difference between a good investment and a bad investment is how fast you get to your goal. So a good investment might make you a bigger rate of return versus a lower rate of return in a bad investment. But either way, if you're spending less than you make and you're saving the difference, you're going to succeed. That's why it's so amazingly easy. It's so amazingly difficult because the emotional aspect of it. It's very hard, especially for families with kids. It's very hard to send your kid to school wearing Walmart shoes when all the other kids in the school are wearing Nikes, even though that's a good financial decision if that's what you can afford. It's very emotionally difficult to actually spend less than you make and save the difference. We want to spend what we make. Man, what you shared just took me back to my childhood days. You know, I, I would see my well, me friends. Me too. I was thinking about my days as childhood too. So yeah, absolutely. Yes. I, I, you know, thinking about my friends that had, you know, the brand new shoes that were in the magazine and, and going yep. to my parents and being like, hey, mom, can I get that? Right. So then, wow, personal finance really is emotional. And Coming back to the topic that personal finance is simple but hard, it's interesting because I remember a Jim Rohn quote, and he said that what is easy to do is easy not to do, right? Yes. Oh, absolutely. That's where a lot of people kind of fall off because it's like, how do you balance the need to feel like, okay, I'm working hard, I'm earning my money, I should enjoy it with, you know, planning and setting yourself up financially for the future? So I think that's a fantastic question. Um, I love that you quote Jim Rohn because I'm going to go uh, go the direction of Michael Hyatt now. So if you're familiar with Michael Hyatt, um, yeah. if you're not, you should. You should, I, you should. I, I definitely am the leadership guy, right? Perfect. He wrote a book with um, Daniel Harkavy a couple years ago called Living Forward. And the whole aspect of this book is planning the way you want your life to turn out. And he recommends that, that you start by writing your eulogy. And the idea of it is if you, in, if you plan your life based on where you want it to end, specifically with the important people of your life, what are they going to say about you at your funeral? then your values started kind of show through. No one's going to sit down and say, what do I want my son? I have four sons, okay? No one's going to sit down 
and say, I want my four sons to say, he bought me the newest stuff every single year. I had the freshest shoes. I had the nicest clothes. I had the best car when I learned to drive. That's what my dad did for me. No one's going to say that. That's not what anyone wants their, their eulogy to be about. Mm. They want it to be about, he taught me how to be a man. He taught me how to treat my wife properly, how to treat my kids properly. Yes. He, he taught me, I'm a, I'm a strong, strongly religious person, so I want my kids to say that I taught them how to be great followers of Christ. And I want them to have those things about me in life, that I was there for them when they struggled and when they needed, that I put the time aside to be home with them at dinner time and to spend weekend time with going to their games. Nobody... You know, the old quote, right? Nobody ever on their deathbed says, I wish I spent a little bit more time in the office. That is I think so... that resonates and hits home because if you think about what do I want my kids to say about me, now I have to think about, okay, well, how do I have to live to make them say it? Wow. That, that is so true. It's just so interesting, the whole concept of money. My wife often likes to say she wishes money didn't exist. So that, <laughs> so that life could be just simple, right? But then, well, that's not the case. And we need a means no. of exchange. We need a means of exchange. So <laughs> Exactly. Can I talk about that for just a minute? Please. So I can kind of nerd out for a little bit. So if I do, stop me on this. One of the things we miss about money is that money is nothing more than a tool. Prior to money, if I had a goat, and you had corn and I wanted to get corn to feed my family and I was going to get, and I'm a goat farmer. So I'm trading you goat. We had to figure out, okay, well, how many, how many goats do I have to give you to get the corn I need? Or how many, how much corn do you have to give me to get the goat? Once money came into play, it made that trade so much easier. I realized that the financial industry is focused on mainly selling financial products and Often, these products are being sold to people who don't really even understand what they are buying, right? So then I believe that, I believed that individuals, professionals need to understand personal finance and investing so that yes. at the point where they are working with a financial advisor, it's not like they are in the dark. They're able to have really good conversations with that individual, be able to discuss strategies. Whereas now it's more like most people just hand off their money. They don't want to be involved. They don't know what's going on. Another reason why I started my business was that I realized that people of color, minorities, immigrants, we don't have a lot of assets, right? To hand over right. to a financial advisor. So for people like us, we, we don't seem to be a lucrative audience. So then that meant that people of color were being just left out. They, they didn't know about investing and they weren't investing and no one was speaking to them about this, right? 100%. So then, And I think that the idea of not getting good financial advice is not limited to minorities. I think it's limited to people who don't have money. And you see a lot more of that in minority in minorities, no doubt about it. Um, but if you're a, if you're any demographic and you have less than a hundred thousand dollars, you're gonna have a hard time getting good advice because you're only gonna end up with a person who sells, yes, who sells investments. And quite frankly, it's probably less than half a million dollars. So if you have less than half a million dollars, you're getting sold something. And I didn't like that. And I think the industry is built to be that way because 
the way the industry works is if you come to me and you have a hundred thousand dollars, I can make a thousand dollars a year off you and I actually charge one and a half. So I'd make $1,500 per year off of you. I would have regulations that require that I have to manage your account on a consistent basis. So whatever we determine that means, I usually look at my clients every quarter, each account quarterly. So I have to do that quarterly. I have to report back that I'm doing that either to you or at least in my files. I have to get audited by the state and all that for 1500 bucks a year. Or I could sell you a mutual fund or an annuity. I can make four to $7,000. And the only requirement I have is to make sure that that investment doesn't really hurt you. You forgot whole life insurance also. <laughs> yeah, I can, yeah, I can sell whole life also. And, and the, okay, so whole life, right? Uh, I'm, th I'm thinking like a rollover. Someone's got a rollover. But if someone comes to me and says they've got uh, $500 a month what, that I want to invest, what do I do with? If I'm a broker, that $500 a month makes me, five, uh, makes me $25 a month if I sell an investment. Mm. That $500 a month, if I sell whole life, it is going to make me about $600 a month for the first year and then very little after that. Wow. So that's why whole life gets pushed so much. So I wanted to create something that instead of selling you, selling my clients a product, we, we just charge, I just charge a fee. You tell me what you want to accomplish. We charge a fee. We work through those goals. And at any point in time, if you say, I've got to my goals, I'm done. I don't need you anymore. We stop the service and you move on. That's just such a brilliant model, right? You charge a fixed fee for providing the service that you're offering so that there's no distraction of, oh, let me put that person into this or that because yeah. it's going to make you more money, right? And Exactly. That is just so important. And unfortunately, the stats is that 90% of investment advisors, brokerages, insurance salespeople, 90% of them are, do not use this model, right? Which is the fiduciary fee-only model. Can you talk to us about fee-only advisors or fiduciary advisors because you have that designation? So yes, there's three, there's really three categories. And the way I kind of picture it is I picture it as a, a Venn diagram. So if you remember um, the three circles that kind of overlap in the middle um, and on one side you have brokers and on the other side you have registered investment advisors and there's an overlap and it's a big overlap. So on, on the left side of the circles, brokers are people who get paid a commission to sell a product and literally a broker is just someone who gets paid to bring two people together, a buyer and a seller. So you think about a real estate broker. Their job is to have this house and bring the buyer and the seller together to get a deal done. And an investment broker is the same thing. They represent the investment company, not the client. They represent the investment company. And their job is to bring sellers of products together with buyers of products. I don't have the exact number, but there's a certain number of people who are only brokers. Usually they're life insurance agents. So they're going to be the people who work for your large life insurance companies, your farmers, your state farms, and your nationwide, Western and Southern. And they could be good people. I don't mean to knock them. These companies can be good companies with good products, but they only have the ability to sell you a product. Then on the other side is registered investment advisors. 
So a registered investment advisor charges a fee for a service. Now it could be like you mentioned early, earlier, AUM, which is assets under management. In that type of situation, it's a percentage of the amount of money they manage for you. It could be a fee as a flat dollar, meaning we're going to do this kind of work and we're going to charge you $2,000 for it. And that's the other side of the circle. Most of the people you encounter are going to actually be both. And this becomes troublesome because not only can they charge you a fee, but they can also sometimes get commission or commission-like servicing fees from the investment provider. So they can sometimes even double dip. So if you're an RIA and a broker and you have an investment account and you charge them 1% and you put this half a million dollar account into investments that also pay you a quarter trail, you tell your client you're making 1%, you're actually making one and a quarter. And that's acceptable in some companies. And I think people don't understand the magnitude of fees, right? Oh, absolutely. They, they don't know. They, the, the point at which I identified that a 1.5% fee, or let's even yes. say a 2% fee, can mm-hmm. erode over 50% of a person's investment funds over a 35-year period, that was eye-opening. Oh, it's huge. It's huge. That's why things like annuities are so dangerous when you're talking about three and a half, four percent sometimes. It's so concerning. Interestingly, Michael, I've spoken with some clients that reach out to me for my free tutoring session, and they tell me how an advisor tried to put them in an annuity. And we're talking yeah. someone who is 31. <laughs> that should be criminal. It's, it's ridiculous. But mm-hmm. as you know, most people don't even know the difference between these types of products. Oh, absolutely. It breaks my heart, Michael, um, because I just feel individuals should look out for each other, right? There's nothing wrong with, yes. with making money. We, we all need to be paid for the service that we provide. I'm paid for the service that I provide, you know, after my free yes. tutoring session. I know you are paid for the service that you provide, but yep. you would just think that society as a whole would lean more towards serving people versus taking from them, right? And uh, you, you have a much, uh, a much more optimistic view of people than I do, unfortunately. I think... It has to do with my upbringing. Uh, my parents really raised us to believe people naturally are good, genuine, trustworthy. And I quickly learned that's not the case, but I tend to still skew a bit towards that. And <laughs> I, find, I find myself getting heartbroken when I discover the true colors of, of people. Yeah, I do. I honestly, I do think most people are going to do what's right. Um, I, I just think most people do what's right because society imposes so many negatives upon you for ripping people off, mm. whether it's prison or it's just society. So think about this, right? You own a business. If you rip someone off, how many people are they going to talk to that'll never buy from you again? Yes. It's an industry that when you first come into the industry, you're usually going to start with an insurance company because they're the only ones that will spend the money to spend the money on you. And they're usually the only places that when you're brand new in the industry where you can actually make a living. 
like when we talk about the difference in, in how much you make when you sell an investment or an annuity versus when you sell a life insurance policy, mm-hmm. the only way you can live coming into this industry is to sell life insurance policies. It's, it's just a sad structure of the industry. So I think there are very good people in a very bad industry and they're brought down because of it. You see, often when I just hear or see people selling these products, I just feel like, why are you doing that? But you do share something that I didn't consider, which is it's their livelihood. It's just that I do hope, like you're sharing, the industry does begin to move towards really serving people because I feel people would gladly pay even more for a service if it really served them. I think that the industry is moving to the to the fee only world. It's just going to it's just going to take a little more time for that to trickle down to middle America, middle America. And the people who are still going to be left out are going to be those people who um, I don't know what the number, what the actual number is, but it's going to be those people who make less than 50000 a year or 40000 and they're struggling and trying to get by, but they don't have the money to, to write a check to get the help. Yes, yes. My plan, Michael, is that some of those individuals, at least they can start out with kind of like an investment tutoring session, whether it's free or paid. And then eventually, as they begin to build a little bit more assets, possibly later on in life, they'll be able to afford working with with a fee-only or fiduciary advisor. Yes, we just got to keep them away from the life insurance agents before they get there. Exactly. That's the hard part. Is if you get to them when they're 45 and, and most of their savings is locked up in a whole life policy, what have they lost? Man, oh my it's gosh. insane. I'm working, and I don't know how to do this yet, but I am working on trying to create a very low-cost financial virtual financial planning product Mm. that would be um it would maybe have an income cap so if your household income is over a certain amount you couldn't qualify for it where for 20 or 30 dollars a month you you know you have complete access to a planner virtually along with an annual meeting i just haven't quite figured out the servicing sideline because i don't want to i don't want to do it and then not be able to service it just to put it out there, you know, you can bounce ideas off of me, you know, in coming weeks or months, I'll be more than happy to share my thoughts on some strategies that you can look into. I would love to. I think it's, I think it's something that we need. There was a company out a few years back called LearnVest. And what they did is they charged $20 a month. Mm-hmm. They had a financial planning platform. I don't know if you were familiar with them or not. Um, yes. But they had a, Okay. Yes, and my heart got broken when they were taken over by Northwestern Mutual, <laughs> the greatest Mutual, life insurance, right? the greatest life insurance company in the U.S. Right? <laughs> yeah, they yeah, and then they shut them down. Oh my gosh! All they wanted was that client list. Gosh, I don't think I don't think Learnvest was even profitable. And Michael, transitioning, we both know that student loans appear to be a big burden for our generation. And I say appear to be because most individuals don't understand how they can manage student loans. And for me, I believe a student loan is the best kind of debt to have because you just have a variety of options, especially with federal student loans with regards to how to manage it, right? So that it doesn't take a toll on your finances. So for people listening who just feel 
burdened by student loans? What, what kind of options do they have? So there's a lot of options, right? The biggest thing to realize is there's, there's three types of student loans. There are private student loans, and your, your main option there, if you have a private student loan, this is where you used your local bank or you used an online bank, and that bank gave you the money. They made the terms of the loan. The government has no, uh, has other than state lending laws, the government has no oversight on it. If you have private loans, your best bet is do everything you can to scrape, claw, and get out of them. They are, they are the worst loans you could have because they have none of the benefits that you were kind of hinting and alluding to a minute ago. They often have um, acceleration clauses and co-signers. So the worst situations I've seen are a situation where mom or dad co-signs for their child. And then they have an acceleration clause that states that if the co if either the borrower or co-signer passes away, the loan is due in full in 60 days or 90 days. So there you are, right? You graduate college, you got $50,000 private student loan. Your mom's the co-signer and mom dies. Now you have to pay it all off in 60 days. So if you have that, get, make sure your life insurance policies are in place. The only way to know is to read the note. Oh my gosh, my Michael, I didn't even know that. Yes. So the only way to know is to read the note. If you call the, the loan servicer, the person you're borrowing from, they're probably not even going to be able to answer that question because the person on the other end of the line making $12 an hour who's been there for three months is halfway through their six-month stint, and then they're going to leave and go to a new job. Private loans, you just want to get rid of as quick as possible. And then there are um, two other types of loans that really are different variations of the same thing. There are federal loans. And you have what are called FFEL or FEL loans. Those are the older loans that we don't issue anymore. But this is where the federal law, the, the Department of Education said, here are the rules for student loans. And they went to companies like Sally Mae, which is Navient today. And they said, Sally Mae, if you give students loans and you follow these guidelines when doing so and follow these rules, we will guarantee the loan. If that student doesn't pay it back, the U.S. government will do it and pay it back to you. And then there are federal direct loans. Federal direct loans are when you borrow directly from the Department of Education. Which is the school, right? The school that a person attended. Well, it's the government itself, the Department of Education of the U.S. government. Yes, I was just clarifying that that loan is being distributed or dispersed directly from the institution that you attend, so the college that you attend. Yeah, you apply through your school, you do the whole FAFSA thing, and whatever whatever they don't offer as student aid, they'll offer you usually as loans. Excellent. So those are your those are those are your um, subsidized and unsubsidized loans. Those loans, any loan that is a federal government loan, has a lot of built-in tools. You have income-driven repayments, which will cap your payments based upon your family size and your income. So there are people who are saying, I don't want to have kids because I can't afford them because of my student loans. Well, you have a kid, your student loans might actually go down. It actually goes down. (laughs) It actually does go down. Yeah, absolutely. So you have a kid, your student loans go down. You, there are people who say, I don't want to go into this field over here where my income is lower, this job over here where my income is lower but that may actually make your payments go down. And depending on going from private sector work to public sector work or nonprofit work, that could actually open up the doors to the best student loan forgiveness program available. 
the public service loan forgiveness program. So there's a lot of benefits to that. You've got you know, just, um, uh, student loan forgiveness in the event of a death of a borrower. So in that same situation we talked about with private loans, where maybe a mom and a dad were co-signers on a student loan with the federal government and mom dies, your student loan could go away. If you, if you can get away with not having a co-signer, you still want to not have a co-signer. But if they ask for one, sometimes plus loan, um, graduate plus loans will require those. If they ask for one, then you have that benefit of knowing that there's a life insurance type benefit to it. Um, there's disability benefits. If you become permanently disabled, they will actually terminate the loans. Now, there's some, there, there's some caveats there. You have to continually prove that you are still disabled and uh, you have to stay on disability the entire time and you have to be able to prove that you meet their guidelines of disabled, but it's still there. No other loans have these features. I know, Michael. I, anytime I share that a federal student loan is the best kind of debt to have, even better than a mortgage, based yes. on the benefits, the options, people don't even understand it. Michael, explain to them what happens when you refinance because people are just looking at, oh, I can get a lower interest rate. Oh. So usually you don't get a lower interest rate. Federal loans are actually pretty good on interest rate. I mean, you can sometimes find something lower, but it's hard. Um, if you've got graduate loans, those might be higher. So with a refinance, right, there's two terms that people throw around a lot. There's consolidation and there's refinance. Consolidation is when you take your Navient or your Great Lakes or your um, Milnet statement and you look at it and they say, here are your five student loans. When you consolidate those, you take those five federal student loans and you turn them into one consolidated federal student loan. It has all the same benefits, most of the same benefits as a, as your old loans had. There's generally no reason to do this. It generally doesn't hurt you to do it, but there's generally no reason to do it. I recommend not doing it unless you have a specific reason, because if you do it once, you can't do it again. And if something happens in the future and you need to do it, you're out of luck. So consolidating, I generally say don't do it, but it's not really going to hurt you a whole lot. Refinancing, though, don't do this. Refinancing is when you take a, a federal loan, like a federal direct loan or a FEL loan, and you take that and you go to your local private bank and say, I want to refinance this loan. Your private bank pays off those federal loans. So you no longer own the government anything and you just owe your bank. When you do that, you lose all the perks of having a federal loan. All of the perks. and for, Every single one of them. Forever. You, you, cannot no go, you cannot go back. If your loan is refinanced, it's done. You are now tied, or if I should, not, not even tied, you are handcuffed to a private lender. Chained and shackled, cement shoes, whatever you want to say. It's, it's terrible. I spoke with a teacher the other day, and actually I'd helped one teacher, and they saw me post something on Facebook and they shared it with their friend. And this other teacher reaches out to me and says, Hey, you helped this person. I don't think you can help me, but here's my situation. And about three years ago, they were sold a refinance on their student loan debt and there's nothing they can do. They can't fix it. And they're a teacher. So they have lots of forgiveness options. There's nothing they can do. They can't fix it. And they have no legal ramifications whatsoever because that, bank that refinanced them, that lender, 
they have no duty to tell the borrower of what they're doing. So I'll tell you something that I was told to do um, back in my day. And we didn't sell loans, but we were told to go out and partner with um, a local a local bank. Find the bank. And we were actually told which which bank to use. And it wasn't a local. They were a, they were a regional to national bank. And we were told to go find someone who works there because they have good interest rates on their student loan refinances. Find people who've got student loans, refinance their student loans into a 20-year term, lower their payments two, three, four, five hundred $500 a month, take that $500. You have any idea where this is going to, that 500 is going to go? Life insurance, annuity, or... Whole <laughs> life, life insurance. Absolutely. You <laughs> saw it coming a mile away. <laughs> and then the worst thing about it, right? What we were supposed to do then is we were supposed to run illustrations on their life insurance that showed them that they'd have enough money at year like 15 to pay off the student loan. They could take the money out and pay off the remaining balance on their student loan. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Oh yeah. And there would have been no, re- there would have been no repercussions for this, um, for us as an insurance agent. And there would have been no repercussions for the loan officer as a lender because neither of them had any duty to that client to tell them about what they were giving up by leaving federal loans. You all, if you're listening, I hope you're beginning to see the importance of getting around individuals that actually are looking out for your best interest. Yeah. And, and that's the phrase you said earlier, right? Fiduciary. A fiduciary is legally required to always act in your best interest. So if I gave someone that advice today, they could then go back and do the math and say, all right, well, that advice cost me $40,000. Mike, you owe me 40 grand. And they could, and you, could, you could go after it. If someone's a fiduciary, they're legally responsible to act in your best interest. And if they don't, you can go after them for damages caused. Only 10% of advisors are fiduciaries. Right. So the caveat to that is it's probably around 5% of advisors are all the ways a fiduciary every single time, no matter what. Mm. Then, that big, then there's that big gap of people who are both registered investment advisors and brokers that we talked about earlier. So the center of that Venn diagram is the biggest part. They're only a fiduciary when they act on an account where they act as a fiduciary. So you've heard me say things like, you should never do this while like when we talked about refinancing federal loans, I'm like, you should never refinance a federal loan um, except for maybe once in a really great while. That little caveat there is because I don't know every listener in your audience. And if this is viewed as advice from me, they can say I offer non-fiduciary advice. So I am always a fiduciary. Every single conversation I have, I'm a fiduciary. So, right. So, so we'll throw, we'll, that's why we throw in there all the time. This information is not advice. It's for educational purposes only. That's why you see that on our websites all the time. Michael, this has been absolutely incredible. I appreciate you taking the time this afternoon uh, to just share so much of your experience with us. And um, I know all of the listeners are appreciative of how open you've been, how transparent you've been. The individuals that are listening and they want to speak with you they want to connect with you how do they do that the easiest way is to go to my website it is www.saveforyourfamily.com that's s-a-v like victor e f-o-r 
Y-O-U-R family, F-A-M-I-L-Y.com. That's the easiest way. You can connect with me on LinkedIn. I'd love to connect with you. I'm on Twitter, but I don't do it a whole lot. And then I've got a Facebook page for my business, Family Life Financial Planning. Any of those places, I'm pretty good at responding. Facebook and LinkedIn, I'm a little slower than if you just email me or call me. And so friends, there you have it. There's a lot that goes on with the financial industry. And being able to educate yourself, being able to know and understand all of these different types of accounts, all of these different types of investment vehicles will help you be able to make smart decisions when it comes to your money. Or if you have student loans, being able to understand how to manage those so that they don't hold you back financially. So friends, we hope that you enjoyed today's podcast episode. If you have any questions, you can reach out to me directly. Contact Michael. Like he said, his website is saveforyourfamily.com. Michael, it was so great having you on here. And just to be you know, transparent, I have no affiliations with Michael. We haven't set up anything. Just like to add that towards the end of this podcast so that we're all on the same page. I just enjoy speaking with different individuals in the financial space and having them here on their podcast is an incredible way to do that. So Michael, once again, thank you so much for your time. Hans, it has absolutely been a pleasure for you. And if anyone, I'll throw this out here too. If anyone's looking to work with someone, uh, feeonly.com is a website where they can look for only fee-only advisors. Excellent. Uh, Michael, thanks so much for sharing all of this incredible nuggets of, of knowledge and wisdom with us. You're welcome, Hans. You have a fantastic day, bud.